Okay. The Lord be with you. Let's pray. God, we ask that as we study Jesus' last week, that you would inspire us with ways to make our own Holy Week holy, but ultimately our lives and the ways we relate to you and one another holy and set apart so that your will in heaven might be done on earth. Amen. Okay, well, uh, welcome back. And many of you can tell already that if you wanted to skip a long sermon, today's the day to do it because those poor eight o'clockers, ooh, they sat through it. Great. Okay, well, um, here we are. <clears throat> this is our last time to really intentionally talk about um, the last week entirely, right? And I'm going to warn you that... Um, I don't really have a great excuse, so I'm not going to come up with a reason, but my brain is in a little bit of a cloud lately, uh, so if I start to repeat myself, please just put your hand up and say, you already said that, come on, like say something different or let us go early, one or the other. Okay, uh, so, so just to review, right, the week, if that's okay, and really, really short, we made the notes uh, last time. Um, Sunday is when it all happens, right? And that's when we have the procession of palms coming from the Mount of Olives. I didn't tell you this, but it becomes important. I won't say this next Sunday, I promise. But we're reading, um, this is lectionary year A, which means we're predominantly reading the gospel according to, do you know? Matthew. And in B, this is helpful, we'll read Mark, right? So they're in order. And in C, we'll read Luke. And many of you are wondering, when do we read John? every year. In fact, in Lent, we're reading John right now, right? Large swaths of John, right? That's, that's the church punishing you during Lent, listening to a whole chapter at a time. Well, well here's what's interesting about Matthew and Palm Sunday, is that in uh, the Gospel of Mark, Jesus comes in riding on a donkey. And I told you about that as a sign of peace, and people didn't know how to ride horses way back when David was doing it. But in Matthew, did I mention this to you? Jesus comes riding not only on a donkey, but also on a colt of a donkey. So, this is going to sound crazy to you. Jesus is riding two animals at the same time, according to the book of Matthew. Uh, because Matthew says this is the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. The Messiah will come riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, in Matthew... Jesus takes this quite seriously. You know, actually in Zechariah, it's the same thing. A, a donkey is also a foal of another donkey, right? That's sort of what it means. But in, but in, but in Matthew, Jesus is riding on two animals. I don't know if I'd ever told you that, but I, I love to point these fun facts out because sometimes we read the Bible with glazed eyes over, and it helps to have this wild image. I mean, when I was a kid, there was Wikiwachi Springs in Florida, and people put on water ski shows. Do you know this? So I don't know if he was standing on the spines of the animals, right? Or if, if the two walked, I mean, had Jesus had really good flexibility. Um, okay, I just wasted your time. All right, so, so on Sunday, Jesus comes in riding one or two animals, depending which gospel you read. And people are cutting the palms, counter-procession, looks at the temple, looks at the fig tree, goes home, right? The next day, Monday, the fig trees withered because it didn't have fig trees. And, and the authors tell you that's a really literary device to talk about how the temple is withered and has no fruit, right? Hopefully you find that, if not replacing the way you used to view it, at least a helpful additive. And this is where it's helpful to say, you might read this book and say, golly, I have to give up what I used to think and just do this? And the answer is it's not an either or, it can be a both and. You can read this as um, taking a very slim view and, and widening the glass. Does that make sense? Uh, or, or taking a Pinot Noir and making it into a Bordeaux. Robust and earthy and flavorful. Okay, anyway. Uh, no, no slight to Pinot Noirs. Um, Tuesday is the, the teaching day where, where people challenge Jesus with things like, um, particularly in Mark, now this book is mostly said in Mark, um, do, we give the, do we give taxes to the emperor or not? Right? We get these famous replies that are pithy and short, but also have a lot of opportunity for us to reflect theologically. And after that day, no one dares to challenge him. Right? Wednesday is the day he's anointed, 
And and Gospel of John will tell you it's the same Mary who is the sister of Martha. You'll hear that in the reading today, right? She's the one who anoints him by pouring $80,000 on his head. And this is also the day where he says, if you want to go with me, take up your cross and follow me. We talked really briefly about uh, what the cross means. Thursday, the primary event, of course, this is Maundy Thursday, called that, remember, because Maundy means mandate. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, as I have loved you, love one another. That's, it doesn't mean foot washing or Eucharist or anything. It means love each other, right? And that's, that's the name of the day. And uh, the other highlight that the authors of the book gave you, that I also gave you, of course, is that um, Jew usually means, well, not, not even usually, it exclusively means someone who lives in Judea. So anytime you're reading the Gospels and they say, the Jews cried, crucify him, what it really means is the people who lived in the region said that. And because it's, we're going to get, to get to Friday now, this is really helpful to hear because maybe you're wondering, how is it the people who were so enthusiastic to see him on Sunday as to cut palms down and to welcome him, and how is it the people who were awed at his teaching on Tuesday now want him to die? And the authors say they probably weren't the same people at all. These are other residents of Judea who could have been Roman or Gentile. Now, I do want to pause there and say, I think this is where it's helpful to, to consider that it's not a replacement, but again, advice to go along with what you've already heard and hold in your head. I do think there's something very theologically significant to think about how sometimes our greeting for Jesus turns into being very disappointed with him. And I mean, you'll see it on the hanging next week for Palm Sunday, right? I mean, this, this idea that the same people who welcome him consider some of the same people who welcome him could be the same ones who say crucify him because they weren't who they hoped he would be, right? They wanted Jesus to do A, and instead he wanted to do Omega. And Omega wasn't what they wanted, so they were done with him. And in some ways, that's a way to read Judas, over a good reason. We talked about last week. Somebody pours $80,000 on your head, that money could have been given to the poor. It's very disappointing and confusing. And sympathetic with Judas, right? So I think part of what we have to consider is, are there moments when we have been so eager to welcome in Jesus until we got to know him, and then he offended us and bothered us? Does that question make sense at all? You're nodding, so that's good. <laughs> You're a very polite group. Okay, well, well, there we have it. On Thursday, we didn't quite get to finish. I mentioned to you before that the Garden of Gethsemane is on the Mount of Olives. So on Palm Sunday, Jesus came right down through it, right down through the olive grove. And what do you know? On Thursday night, that's where he goes to pray, right? And that's where Judas comes and greets him with a kiss. And you know, that's not weird. That's actually pretty normal custom of greeting. Right? So really what Judas tells the temple guards is the person I greet with a kiss, that is the first person that I greet as someone I know is the one to arrest. And the book tells you, right, the guards have no idea who Jesus is and they don't care. If they knew anything about him, they wouldn't need Judas to point out who he was, right? So Judas becomes really instrumental in pointing him out and that happens an interesting thing, right, that a sign of hospitality and greeting is actually the very sign of betrayal. Again, echoes that theme of palms of welcome becoming palms of dust, right? And what do I mean by that? You know the ashes from Ash Wednesday are when we take the palms we used last year and convert them to ashes, right? Because sometimes our greeting and our warm welcome turns into cries of something else. Right? I mean, that's, that's actually the theology of, of, of the palms. Okay, so that gets us to Thursday, and what we understand is that Jesus stands trial at Caiaphas's house. Now, now, we don't want to think about this as being a personal residence as much as we want to think of it as um, sort of a house of function. So it's like the White House, 
Caiaphas lives in something like the White House. It's, it's a big, fancy home that has been built by other people so the high priest can live there, right? And the next high priest will also live in that home, right? And, and that's where he goes and stands trial. And we talked about it just very, very tangentially last week on Thursday night, and we're thinking 12 a.m., maybe we're thinking Friday really early in the morning, that Jesus stands trial <clears throat> at the high priest's home. By the way, that, that is unprecedented. All trials in the ancient world are conducted at the gate of the city, the gate, where people come in and out. Because, as I told you before, most people don't live inside the city. They live outside the city. They come in during the day for commerce. They go back out to their fields at night. And during a time of war, the city's overcrowded because it has walls, and they can live inside the walled city where their homes would be taken over by invaders. Right? So trials at home are suspicious. What do you know? This is a suspicious trial, right? And we sort of know that. The Gospel writer tells you that. And witnesses can't even agree on what to say. And at one point, the high priest says, Are you the Messiah? <clears throat> and Jesus says, Well, does he say, I am? Or does he say, am I? And that's interesting, isn't it? To hear a linguistic argument from people that in Greek, I am, can be rendered, am I? And sure enough, the next day when Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, you say I am. So the authors, I think, raise a really strong, really strong possibility that Jesus answers with a question. Would be really like the rest of what he says when he's examined and tried, right? And, that, and that's, that's what they raise up. Which raises a theological question, I think, for us, and, and I'm going to really bore you here, so please at some point say, like, could you stop boring me? Could you just, could we talk about blank? Becomes a really important question in Holy Week, especially. Did Jesus know he was God? Did Jesus know he was the Messiah? Now, I know what we normally think. We normally think that Jesus, being God, knew everything. Jesus walked into a room and could read everybody's mind because God could do that. But I want to suggest to you that if Jesus could do that, he wasn't a human being. And ultimately, what the church decided, I mean the church, capital C, was that Jesus had two natures. That's why the Pope blesses you with these two fingers, right? The two natures, the Trinity's here, and these are the five wounds of Christ. That's what they say, right? The Pope does that business. The divine is fully present, and the human is fully present in such a way that neither one is violated, right? So, so again, if Jesus could come in and read people's minds, he's, he's not in any way like I am. I usually think I can read people's minds, and I'm often that's when I'm the most wrong. <laughs> you know, he's frowning. He really hates what I'm thinking of. No, just he frowns a lot. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's really my shoes he doesn't like, not the content of what I'm saying, right? I mean, these sorts of things are, 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 are things that happen to us, right? So I think what, 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 what's key is think how much more difficult the whole week has to be if you have doubts about why you're even doing it. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Those, things, those times in our life where we are so certain that if we stick to A, if we always do A, we're going to get A+. Plus. It doesn't really matter what happens if we know A plus is going to come. If we know A plus is coming, we can endure anything. But if we're not sure whether it's F or A+, plus, it makes it really hard to stick to track A and not have doubts and worries. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? The, the, here's, here's the safest analogy I can give you if you've parented children or been around young children, if you know your parenting style is going to work, you could stay up all night every night. I mean, you almost could stay up all night every night. It's when you start to think, oh my God, I shouldn't have done this thing, because now they're going to turn out to be sociopaths. They're going to, they're going to take that the wrong way. That's what causes you to lose sleep more than anything. If you just knew following the recipe would get you the souffle, you would do it. But you're not sure you either have to follow the recipe like that, or you're not sure they'll even take it that way. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Again, if you've had children, I think, I think it makes sense, right? It's the doubt, right? 
if you knew the outcome would be great, you'd endure all of it and it'd be fine. It's just we don't know the outcome. And what the authors say is, you know, Jesus does have a sense of where what he's saying might take him, will probably take him, like 90% probability people will identify him as being a traitor and committing treason and crucify him. That's different than knowing I'm going to die this particular death on this particular day in this particular way and it's going to mean blank to everybody who sees it 2,000 years later. Does, does that make sense what I'm saying? I better just talk about the book now, sorry. Okay, so it's Friday. It's Friday morning. And morning becomes really important because if you're Jewish, the day begins in the evening, right? And you can read this in Genesis. There's an evening and a morning, day one, right? So Friday we know is Shabbat, but Shabbat doesn't happen until you can see three stars in the sky, which right now would happen around, what do you think, about 8 o'clock with the time change, right? And, and it gets later and later and later. So you actually find some synagogues will go ahead and adjust the time at which they start their synagogue prayer service on Friday. And in the summer, I mean, that could be 9.30. What most people do is say, it's at 5.30 on Fridays, right? Because starting the Shabbat prayer service at 9.30 p.m., well, that's going to be a long night, especially if you've got small children, right? But what it does tell us, right, is that if you're Jewish, you've got to take care of business before 5 or 6 or 7 p.m., right? If you're Roman, it doesn't even matter. The day's just started, and, and 5 or 6 or 7 p.m. is fine. That's the conclusion of business of the business day, right? But if you're Jewish, everything's got to be ready because you've, really Friday morning is the day of preparation. It's the day, the morning you get ready so that you don't do any cooking the next day, right? And, and if you're a woman, just to remind you, you probably spend five and a half hours each day making a two-pound loaf of bread for everybody in your family. Friday is double time because they'll need Friday's daily bread and they'll need Saturday's daily bread and you have to grind all of that stuff and knead it and bake it and let it rise. Does this make sense? So Friday is more urgent if you're Jewish than if you're Roman because you kind of have to get two days of work in before five or six o'clock. Anyway, they have to wait until Pilate is willing to hear them on Friday, having had not even really a trial. I mean, this is like a kangaroo court on, on, on Friday morning. And it becomes really important to say that Rome would have tolerated Jewish people having stoned Jesus for blasphemy. They would have put up with that. It happened. It happened to Stephen, remember? He's the first martyr. That, that we read about in the book of Acts, and he's stoned right outside the Jaffa Gate in Jerusalem. Or actually outside the Stephen Gate, I said that wrong. Rome didn't love it, right? But here is something different. Here we have Jesus being crucified, which is a, which is a punishment that Jewish leaders cannot do for lots of reasons. Number one, it's reserved for, for Rome to do. Number two... Crucifying somebody, if you're Jewish, is so unclean that no Jewish person would be involved in it. Because according to Deuteronomy, cursed is any person who is hanged on a tree. So stoning is one thing, being crucified is something else. We don't even have like, like um, analogies anymore. We don't have anything like this. Right? Of course, we know in the Old South, right, people conducted lynchings without without federal judges. And we know in some communities that was tolerated because the judge was one of the people doing it, right? However, that would be very different than having the capital, the capital punishment sentenced upon you by a judge, right? Those mean different things, and we all know that, right? Usually, when you think of lynching, you think of injustice, don't you? Lack of fair trial, lack of evidence, lack of empathetic peers. And sure, we know people were given capital sentencing and some of that was at stake, but at least there was the veneer of fairness. Do you, do, do you know what I mean? Those are fundamentally different things. So stoning is like lynching and crucifixion is like the electric chair even though it happened the same day and there was not a seven-year appeals process. So Friday morning they go and they see Pontius Pilate and um, 
and they ask him for the capital crime. And Pilate, in the Gospels, comes across as somewhat aloof and rather nice. Oh, what has he done? Why would I do this? It's like Pilate doesn't even know the guy. And, and I want to tell you, <laughs> this is historically really questionable. Because what we know of Pontius Pilate, we talked about this on Sunday, is that he was a savage brute, frankly. And he cared nothing for Jewish piety or practice, nothing at all. Pilate was the one who introduced the emperor's image into the temple courts in the middle of the night. He knew Jewish people would hate it, but he snuck it in. The Jewish people won because they laid and put their throats bare and said, go ahead and cut our throats. If you're going to leave this stuff here, we'd rather die. And ultimately, Pilate knew if 5,000 people died, he wouldn't be the procurator anymore. So he removed the images of the emperor. <laughs> Pilate ultimately lost his procuratorship when he killed a bunch of Samaritans who went up on top of Mount Gerizim to worship because he thought they were going to lead a rebellion. And Rome said, you know, this is too much. Too much. So he was removed in, we think, the year 36. Jesus, we think, is either 30 or 33 crucified by Pilate, right? So when you read the Gospels and Pilate seems like he wants to free Jesus, that's not a histor that's historically very unlikely. I'm just, just going to tell you that. Why would the Gospels say that? if that wasn't the way it was? Well, mainly because the Gospels are written, we think, around the year 70. And 70 is the year the Jewish revolt is mostly put down and the temple in Jerusalem is not only burned down, but all the walls are pushed off the retaining wall into the Kidron and other valleys. The temple is completely destroyed. And this is the year where if you're Christian, you don't want to be Jewish anymore. Because Rome's having a problem with Jewish people. And you want to say... We're not like those people. You can trust us. We're not rebels. You may say, Mike, why are you messing with the Gospels? <laughs> not trying to, but there is, remember this thing that happens here. It says there's a custom of Pilate to release a prisoner on the Friday before the Shabbat of Passover week. Okay? No evidence for that. And remember that the people who are prisoners are being accused of the crime of sedition. Why would anybody release Lenin when they have him in jail ahead of the Russian Revolution? Why would you do that? Why would you release Benedict Arnold right after you caught him in the act of sedition? It makes no sense, historically. Of course, it's important to know, right, that the person that, that they go to release on Friday, according to the text, is Barabbas, who may not even be a real person anyway, right? I mean, the, the important thing is, in some ways, what it means. Barabbas means son of the father. Bar, like bar mitzvah, Abba, right, which you know, right, bar Abba. And so what they say is, give us the son of the father we want instead of the son of the father. They picked the wrong son on, on, on Friday, right? I mean, just think through that theologically, and, and hopefully that makes sense to you. If it happened historically as well, great, right? But, but again, it seems really unlikely that somebody who's worried about treason and sedition would release a known seditionist. Does that make sense? Okay, so the events on Friday are that they go and they see him and he has a trial and Jesus does not prove very willing to participate, right? You say I am. And then he's silent. Silent. We've been to the place where this happens and I think I drew a map. If you went on the pilgrimage, this happens right outside the temple enclosure in the Antonio which is this giant forest, fortress that Herod built. So here's the Temple Mount, huge, like three or four football fields. Here's the Antonio Fortress that has towers significantly taller than those outside the temple. And, and we think that the geography is that right in front of here, there are some steps. And Pilate would have sat on the top step, and Jesus would have been down here on the ground on what's called the stone pavement, or gabatha. 
And, and this is the place where there's the Jews, meaning people who live in Judea, are the ones saying, crucify him. And it seems like, golly, Pilate's so afraid of the crowd that, that he consents to this capital punishment that's reserved only for insurrectionists. Again, this is a little tough historically to, 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 to buy, but that's what happens, and it happens right here, right outside the temple. The high priest's house, for what it's worth, is about an eighth of a mile in this direction here. Okay. All very, very proximal to each other, right? So this happens here, and I told you already, I think, about crucifixion, right? About how it would have looked historically. Um, you know, our, our guide, and this is true, has, has found uh, buried remains of somebody crucified. There's a spike in their ankle bones still. A spike is not huge. It's a nail. It's just a nail. And you may say, well, golly, it'd have to be a really big nail to hold somebody way up on any kind of beam. And, of course, that's true, except it's the ropes that hold people up, right? It's the ropes. The nail is done later out of just tragedy and spite, right? It's not strong enough to hold somebody's body up. There's also records, it turns out, we found in, in one of these text graveyards of people who are crucified being taken down by their families in the night, and, and they revive. They, they come out okay. And how they're reconciled to the community after having been hanged on a tree, which makes them cursed, right, is part of the subject of the record. Anyway, what we understand is this is what happens, and that there are three crucified here on the left and right. Am I, am I, I'm worried I'm not giving you anything that you're interested in. All right. Again, they're right outside the city wall, and the other two people who we've, we've hitherto four known to be robbers and thieves are not robbers and thieves. They're insurrectionists, and Jesus is assigned a place with them, right? And the only way that the cross looks like the shape we think it does is if you put a placard up on top that says, here lies Jesus, King of the Jews, right? Otherwise, you're thinking capital T, right? We get some other elements in the story. Right? that the land is covered with darkness. And again, I think it becomes important for us to, remember, to, to, to ask. I mean, we can get bogged down and say, was there a solar eclipse that happened on that day? Or was there really dense fog that refracted the light? That doesn't, that's not even real, is it? You can't really have refraction turn black, can you? You get rainbows, right? You don't, you don't get, get darkness. The other question is, right, what is the author trying to tell you is about the deep gloom, right? And, and, of course, we hear the statement from the centurion, right? This man was the son of a god. Now, that's important. Not the son of God, but the son of a god. These are polytheists. The centurion is not some monotheist. He's not the first Christian witness. But the authors do tell you what's significant about that phrase, right? is that Caesar Augustus and Caesar Tiberius said they were sons of a god. So in some ways, right, this is telling you the meaning is that Jesus is the son of a god instead of Caesar, by admission of the very person most complicit in the Roman imperial system, a centurion. By the way, centurions are like chief master sergeants. They're the highest enlisted rank you can have in Rome. If you'd like to be a consul or you'd like to be a general, you have to be of noble birth. And many of you know this if you know anything about the armed forces, right? That um, often the highest paid enlisted makes less than the lowest paid officer. I only use the word often. I'm pretty sure it's 99% of the time. There might be rare exceptions, right? But that's part, of the, that, that's, that's part of how it's always been, right? And so genuine officers are people who come with purple fringes on their garments. They're knights, they're dukes. Their parents have huge tracts of land, right? Whereas a centurion is somebody who truly has pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. And if you've ever been on a military base, the colonel might say something, but people wait until the chief master sergeant confirms the colonel's order to do it. Have you had that experience before? Anybody, anybody military? 
Am I right in that? That was often the experience in submarines and in the Coronado Naval experience. And we had top brass. We had four-star admirals. The admiral would say something, and then people would look at, <laughs> look at the, the chief master sergeant, right, just to confirm that's what they should do. Okay. Um, <clears throat> this is that guy, and he has really worked himself into this position, and he's the one making this evaluation. Um, the other thing that happens that's interesting is... Uh, that the veil of the temple is torn in two, right? That's what Mark says. And that's interesting um, because the veil, you know, would be something, going back to that other diagram, if this is the temple court and this is for Jewish people only and this is for Jewish men only and this is for priests only, this right here, in that room it's subdivided into two rectangles and this subdivision right here is a curtain that divides where regular priests can go from where the high priest can go one day a year on Yom Kippur. And in this little room here would be the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, that's the box on which they understood God to be standing on. Probably lost in 590. By the way, it's God's footstool, not God's chair. It's important to know God stood on the Ark. God didn't sit on it. That was their, their understanding, right? It also tells you how big they thought God was, about 30 feet tall, because that's how big the temple was, right? So God could stand on that box. That box is about four feet wide, about three cubits, by about two feet deep, and about two feet, I did that wrong, width, length, and depth, two feet deep. And on top of it, of course, there are two cherubim, right? We don't think there was a box at the time of Jesus. We don't think so. We think it got melted down in about 587 when the Babylonians took over the first temple, and we think never rebuilt. We think that because Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 came into the Holy of Holies to sacrifice a pig to, uh, to Jupiter, to Zeus, and there was nothing in it. And similarly, in 70 uh, is when Titus, the general who ultimately burned the temple down, went into the Holy of Holies and said there was nothing in it. So either you buy the lore that the, the Knights Templar knew where the Ark was hidden underneath some rock on the Temple Mount, or they just didn't have another one. Yes, sir? Isn't there a picture of the seven branch candlestick and, and a box being carried out? And the yeah, the box most certainly would not have been something like the Ark. That's probably the altar for incense or the altar on which the, the consecrated bread is placed. Um, the menorah, yes, right, the seven-branch the seven branch candlestick that's the symbol of modern Israel as well. So that, we think, may have lit the space, but, but, but no ark according to both Titus and Antiochus, right? Uh, those boxes, just out of curiosity, you know, um, you, they're sort of shaped like you'd expect. They're, they're sort of boxes. And they have little horns on them, like this, little triangles. And nobody actually knows why altars have horns. Nobody knows why. But when they burned incense in the Jewish temple, they burned it on an incense altar that had horns on it. And the consecrated bread was laid, was laid just next to this curtain, right? If it were laid inside, the priest would be going in there more, more than once a year, and that could end up with his death, <laughs> right? Uh, What's important about this curtain, though, is that the weave and the warp and the woof are so strong that apparently it would have taken competing teams of oxen to tear it. So you're not thinking of chiffon or lace, right? You're, you're, not, you're not thinking about one of those, those, those closet covers you have of sheer fabric. You're thinking about something that is extremely heavy and to be ripped completely right the theological message of course is about people having access to god and god having access to people and, and that this is now something that's happened right did it really tear from top to bottom i don't even know if that's a helpful question how would we know well only two or three people would have even been privy to that information because most people of course are not allowed in that room right but again, you start to see what the author is trying to emphasize is, is what's, what's accomplished here, right? Is there some significance to the directions that the writer is very sure is performing from the top of the bottom? Yes. 
Yeah, this is something that the authors don't, that they don't say, which is very interesting. Um, when Jesus is baptized in the Gospel of Mark, um, if you read it, the heavens, do you remember what happens to the heavens? They're split open, and the word split is the word schizo, like schizophrenic. They're ripped apart, and they're ripped from top to bottom, from top to bottom. Uh, and this is an echo at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and at the end, the heavens are just ripped up. <laughs> that is, the veil and the layer between heaven and earth are broached on both ends, Right? So really, I think what it's, the, the emphasis of top to bottom is what God is doing, right? What, what God is doing here, which is permitting this, this access and allowing, right, us to experience God's will on earth and not just in heaven. Does that, does that make sense? Theologically, it's a pretty interesting statement. For what it's worth, in, in Luke, the only one who hears, who sees the dove coming down is Jesus. Same in Matthew. In Mark, everybody can see it. And everybody can hear God's voice saying, this is my son, the beloved, with, with him I'm well pleased. Um, the only other thing really that they, the two or three other things they emphasize that I think that are really helpful to just raise up to you, right, is the question, is the cross a divine necessity or was it made inevitable by humans? And this I think is really important to ponder. Did God need Jesus to suffer and die? Or was that the inevitable outcome of the way we treat messengers from God? Now, this is something we've been trying to really raise our awareness to the entire book, right? Is Jesus' death a penal substitutionary atonement? That is, God has a big paddle in heaven and somebody's going to get spanked. You or Jesus, take your pick. A lot of problems with that. The way I just said it, right, you'd say, Mike, that's crazy. Although that was the Christianity I grew up with. And it was even expressed just like that. Jesus is our whipping boy, if you've ever read that book. The whipping boy um, in the fifth grade. Uh, that's, a tough, that's a tough thing to swallow, right, for lots of reasons. Is it like that, or is it, that the cross became inevitable because the domination system does not like to be challenged the way that it was. You could say, Mike, it could be both, or it could be something else. And, and, and in any answer you pick, I think there's life in what you say, although I do worry about 100% penal substitutionary atonement. I worry about that. I worry about it because... Don't you start to wonder, if God can do anything, why does God have to punish somebody to forgive them? <laughs> does that make sense, what I'm saying? I mean, when your children do something wrong, do you have to punish somebody to forgive them? And if your child is so wrong, do you have to punish the dog in their stead? Well, you'd call that animal abuse, wouldn't you? So what doesn't work on earth, how could that possibly work in heaven? I mean, I think that's what the authors are trying to get us to think about, right? Um, the other thing that we get, right, is that, that Joseph of Arimathea comes and he's this kind of closeted, closeted follower of Jesus and, and he cares that Jesus gets a proper burial. Because quite honestly, Rome would have been happy to leave the corpse up on the cross. And Jewish people in general would have been happy to leave the corpse up on the cross because who's going to touch the dead body and be defiled on the second holiest day of the year, the Shabbat of Passover? The holiest day of the year is Yom Kippur, right? But, but who's going to be ceremonially unclean from having touched a corpse on the second holiest day of the year, on Christmas Eve? Who's going to do that? Make it so they can't go to church. Um, so really, Joseph goes to great pains, both, both at his own expense and also at the expense, in some ways, of his community piety to take care of Jesus and give him a proper burial. Right? And the tomb that we think he's laid in is, is one that's quite small. You can go inside these today. Probably about three and a half feet high, about two and a half feet wide, 
and about six feet deep because people were shorter then. In that room, a body is laid on a slab to decompose, and you'll hear this in the sermon if you don't fall asleep. Um, and, and then after it's decomposed, the bones are collected and put in a niche either in that same room or in an adjacent room, or they're put in a box called an ossuary, right? But, but, but principally, they're put in there to decompose. And, you know, it's not to say Jesus wouldn't have been properly buried. It's just there's no time. There's no time for his family to take him back to Nazareth or to lay him in Bethlehem. There's no time. There's only two hours before the Shabbat, right? This is what they're going to do. Uh, they're going to get him a proper burial quickly, and then they're going to come and put the spices on him on Sunday. That's what the women come to do. They come to do the, the proper work, right, of grieving and mourning. And Joseph is the one who does this, right? Uh, and, and that's where the story ends, really, on Friday. Did I, did I miss anything from the book or from your imagination otherwise or from, from things on, on Friday? I do think it's important to know that the, the moniker Good Friday is not as old as you think it is. And I think it becomes important to say, is Friday really a good day? The older description is actually Black Friday, and I know you're thinking, that's the day after Thanksgiving when we put all the retailers in the black. But, but black is older than good, mainly because the sky was black and because it's really an awful day, if you think about it. An awful day. Only retrospectively are we able for good to come out of it, you know? But, but I think it's important to hold those together that Friday can be good, but it is first black. And I think that becomes really important, important for our faith, so that when you come in on Good Friday, if you do, the minister and everybody else is clothed in black, and there's no vestments or stoles or anything like that, right? Uh, the solemnity and the sobriety today are, are meant to be really quite strong. It's the one of two days a year where the Eucharist cannot be celebrated, it can only be distributed, right? Reserve can be distributed, but it cannot be consecrated. Same on Saturday. Okay, should we talk about Saturday? It's really short in the book, right? Saturday is the day where not really much happens in the story, except there's this idea of, uh, that, that has really come forward in later tradition, the harrowing of hell, right? Hopefully that's really interesting for you. Saturday, by the way, is, is <laughs> depending where you go, is called Holy Saturday, and particularly in Bavaria, there, there are groups for whom Holy Saturday is kind of a bigger day than Easter. I know that's really strange, right? But, but it's really the day for them when Christ A, harrows hell, and B, is in this liminal space that we often find ourselves. He's in the tomb, you know, in the places of death, right? That we find ourselves not only after we physically die, but during life, these, these places of entombment, right? So what is the harrowing of hell? The harrowing of hell is the idea that Jesus goes down into hell, that's with a small h, and bursts open the gates so that all the prisoners can leave. And that's a later idea. I mean, we're talking about 200 years after the resurrection before we get this idea of Christ having harrowed hell, okay? Well, as we start to think about it now. Um, so, so what is hell, and, and why does it need harrowing? Um, and it's maybe more helpful to use different words than hell because that's such a loaded word for us. When I hear the word hell, I usually think of fire and brimstone and red guys with pointy sticks and an eternity of, of ironic and physical punishment that's really awful, right? Thank Dante Alighieri for that because it's not biblical. Um, hell has a precedent in the Hebrew word Sheol, and, and it's the place of the dead. If you know your Greek mythology, you could say it's across the river Styx, it's Tartarus, and it's just the place you go when you're dead. It's under the ground. It's really dark. It's not necessarily unpleasant. I mean, it's not full of ironic punishments. Those are reserved for really, really bad people in Greek mythology. But in general, when you die, you just go there. You, you, you cross the river Styx, and you sort of stay there, and there's no contact with the living unless you're a demigod and can get across there, right? Right? Or, or, or Hades, the Lord of the Dead, snatches you. There's no 
lord of hell in, in the, the Judaic mind. Satan does not rule, rule in hell. Rule in hell. That, that's, that's John Milton's idea. It's not the Bible's idea. So you're thinking of a really old idea that does not revolve around immortality of the soul as we think of it now. As we think of it now, when you die, if you know Jesus or you're good or something, you go to heaven forever, which looks like a lot of different things, according to whom you ask. Could mean wearing white robes and singing all the time. I was really afraid of that as a high schooler because it seemed like it would get really boring. Um, and I'm not a great singer. Or, or you go to hell and it hurts a lot all the time and it, like, is burning pain. And that's, that's kind of what we've inherited, right? Very, very different, though, from around the time of Jesus, right? So around the time of Jesus, this is just where dead people go. And what happens when hell is harrowed is basically death is brought back, or, 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 or people realize with death, that the, the death should never, ever have a capital D. It always has a lowercase. Just think theologically how different that is, right? Because in Genesis, God makes human beings out of clay, out of dirt. If God wanted us to live forever, God should have picked iridium. <laughs> I mean, really, don't you think? Right? Or titanium, even. It's flexible, right? Iridium, we know, is, is stronger than titanium. And I'm sure there's some other alloys that are even stronger than those, right? But God picked dirt. And... and Biblically, this becomes really, really important. We, we forget it, you know, because a lot of people say, well, well, God made us good and human beings ruined it all. But, but, but biblically, I just want you to know that can't happen. Because the only person biblically who can create something is God. Human beings can make and do things, but they can't create them. So the question is, if God creates us in a certain way, can we uncreate what God has done? And theologically, biblically, linguistically, the answer has to be no. So when human beings are made in the image of likeness of God, can we lose that? The linguistic argument is no. We can live as though it weren't true, but we can never undo the truth of it. Does that, does that make sense? Now, I know I sound a lot like John Locke right now, right? And less like Thomas Hobbes, which is good, I think. The truth is, we often... Uh, we often think the Bible is really worried about our sins, our little s things that we do. Like somebody says, are you feeling good today? And I feel, oh yes, I'm feeling great, which is a bold-faced lie. You, have you told that lie before? By the way, today I'm fine, but you know what I mean, right? I always think it's so strange when people say, you doing okay today? And, and we say, oh, I'm doing good, how are you? you know, and that is not at all the truth, right? The Bible is actually not worried about those things very much at all. The Bible is worried about sin with a capital S. And this is really helpful if you know your catechesis of the Good Shepherd. Sin is defined in the prayer book as a separation from God. So Jesus came to harrow us from separation from God. Because as a Southern Baptist, I learned that hell is separation from God. And you know, actually, that's probably helpful because living in sin and living in hell are actually pretty, pretty like, like identities, you know? Of course, you have to ask the question, this becomes really important, is God everywhere at the same time? Is God omnipresent? I mean, I learned as a little boy, God's omnipresent and omnipotent, all-powerful and omniscient, all-knowing. Did you ever learn those words? Of course, those are Greek words, they're not Hebrew words, right? But if we accept them, then is there such a thing as separation from God? Because if there's separation from God, then God's not omnipresent. You, 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 you get it, right? It's either or. I think existentially, it's one thing to say God's everywhere, and it's another thing to know that and feel it and believe it and walk in it. And, and those gaps, those gaps are hell for me. There's not red pointy guys, but there is sorrow and death. 
So what if Jesus came to harrow those places? What if the harrowing of hell amounts to Jesus liberating us from any tomb that has managed to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? That's a pretty positive spin on the day, you know? I mean, it's really positive. And it reminds us again, and I think this is part of the Friday message, right? That God is not too, too big to die the deaths we die. And this becomes important theologically, too. And, you know, you can say, did God need to do it or, or did it happen because of us? Whatever you say, right? But, but if Jesus really is God, then everything Jesus does, in some ways, tells us about who God is eternally, right? Right? And, and, and what that means, right, is the fact that Jesus dies means death is part of God. And the only reason I say that is not to shake your faith, but to raise it. That means we never die alone. And it also means God really knows what it's like to be in pain, to feel lonely and isolated. And when Jesus says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Golly, Jesus knows what it's like to doubt God too. Isn't that nice to know? I thought it was just priests. And so, um, so all this becomes really, really important. And those are the hells that God offers to Harrow. You know, I think we can read it a different way, that people are physically trapped in the fiery place. Fine, if you believe in that, that's fine, because either way, God is there to liberate you from it. And, and this becomes really interesting when you read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, who, by the way, was no real theologian. He was an armchair theologian, right? The man's mastery was in medieval literature. You want to read him at his best, you'll read his commentary on Paradise Lost. He was a layperson, you know, who wrote this book, The Great Divorce, which says hell's only eternal if we make it. But that God is essentially trying to bust us out of hell and bust us out of hell every day. He's talking about the one when you die. So hold on to that one. And then imagine God's trying to bust us out of the hells that we live in every day on earth. And, and that, I think, is what is happening on Holy Saturday. <laughs> is that helpful at all in any way? Sorry. The authors talk about it, and, and that's what I think they're trying to get us to think about. Uh, there's one other thing they talk about, which is about resurrection, but I don't know that I necessarily want to talk about that because we've done it before. Then that brings us, of course, to Easter, where they're giving their big summary, right, on Easter Sunday. And we're doing this a little early, of course. Um, Of course, they start out by asking, what's more important, the historicity or the meaning? And, you know, again, I think we've talked about that so much that, that, that obviously um, and, and true confession about what going on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land does. I spend so much time thinking about the meaning that sometimes I forget the historicity. And what's kind of neat about going to the Holy Land is being in a place and saying, oh, that house could be the place where Mary talked with God. And it's kind of a neat thing, to be honest with you. Um, and Jesus had to be baptized in some river, and maybe not at this spot, but, but in the, the river. It's sort of neat to bring the meaning also into reality. I don't know if that makes sense, right? But so much of my faith was based on reality and not meaning that, that I, I swing the other way sometimes. Just, just going to be frank with you. Um, it's, it's sort of nice to go both ways. But what, of course, they're doing is the same thing as they're trying to say, it's one thing to talk about the historicity of events, but of course, as Christians, the most important thing is, how does this inform the lives we are to live before God? And I think they're right. Studying about what Jesus did and what happened to him and what happened to his disciples, of course, is important, but only really as it informs our relationship with him and how we interact with each other. That way it's not just neat stuff. It's, it's meaningful, right? And so, uh, you know, again, they talk a lot, again, about, about what it means to be vindicated by God and what it means um, to really embrace this whole Holy Week as, as God's commentary and God's realignment against a domination system. And you may think they overdo the politics here. But golly, aren't we living in a political climate that could use some correction? I don't care whether you're a, a Republican or a Democrat. I don't. 
it doesn't matter because to be honest on any given issue I'm I, I, I'm not I'm not a, I'm not a party voter right but what I do know is we live in a system it's built on <laughs> I mean it's, we just we trade in 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 conflict intentional conflict it wasn't my idea the other party came up with it so I hate it instead of let's weigh the merits of it or that idea would cost Americans something let's not do it instead of there is something to justice that is greater than just ourselves right we live in that climate we also live in a climate, right, where words mean nothing. You can call people whatever you want. You don't even have to say sorry when it's pointed out you were wrong. Well, it's just words, you know, why are you so upset? That's not a good climate to live in, is it? I think that's what the book's talking about. So when they close with the idea, great, if Jesus is your personal savior, is he your political savior too? I think that's really what they're saying is, at what point does our theology affect the way we live our daily lives and treat each other? And isn't that really what it's supposed to all be about? That was my thrilling conclusion. That was theirs too. <laughs> Were there things that I missed about this book that you enjoyed or didn't like? Or questions or comments that you have? Yes, sir. Yeah, I think the hard thing is, thank you, because I think that's exactly what they're asking us to do, and I think what we don't know is quite what that looks like right because you see occupy wall street and you say i don't know if it's that and all of these counter marches and you say well i get the intent but i don't know if it's that right and you watch the man yeah we I, and i think that's part of the thing is that we don't know but but sometimes i think that's where we stop we say this is too big and i don't know what to do so until somebody shows me i'm just not going to do anything and and Maybe it's helpful, you know, there's this, this Harvard anthropologist and medical doctor named Paul Farmer who started Partners in Health, which is really bringing first world medical care to places like Haiti and Rwanda that we usually say are in the third world, right? But what Paul, Paul Farmer says is, you know, there's only one world. There aren't actually three, right? And so people in Haiti deserve the same standards of medical care that we get here, right? It's interesting, right? It's interesting. And oddly enough, by the way, people in Rwanda in general have better access to medical care than a lot of developed countries because they put it in their constitution that people get it. <laughs> I know that sounds really weird, but that's what they've done after the legacy of the, the Hutu and the Tutsi, right? Is, is they've actually changed the documents to, to, to do this. And what Paul Farmer says is, you know, um, a lot of times we see things are problems and we don't know the answer, so we stop. And, and our job is not necessarily to solve the problem, but to, to recognize when there is one and try to make connections with people who can solve them. And, and that, I think, is, is, is the piece. Sometimes we stop without trying to find the connections. I don't know how to solve poverty or inequity. I just don't know how to do that. But I know they're problems. I know they're problems. I know they need to be solved. I know that there's a lot more likelihood of them being solved, even at the micro level, when we do it instead of I do it. You know? I think, I think that's part of what the book is really trying to take us to, is, is not giving up on our problems, but holding on to them. I think it's a great idea, and I think then it becomes incumbent upon us on faith communities to try to connect. I'm not, and I'm saying this as an Episcopal priest, realizing that there's this big old Lutheran church here. It's huge compared to us. And this huge Catholic church and this huge Baptist church, right? And, and, and these are just people who are coming on Sundays to worship in a similar faith, right? To try to expand the network. Because the truth is, right, um, the more people we have dedicated to these things, the, the, the more we can focus on the whole beach <laughs> or on the fact that, that starfish are becoming beached right and prevent it instead of just dealing with its consequences right i mean i think it's got to be, i think it's got to be a both and right and again i think that's where the community of faith becomes really really important because the community can literally do things i could never accomplish on my own not just because we have shared resources but because we have shared ideas and shared access to whole systems right it's got to be both and 
I think that's right. I think that's right. When we do it right, we, when we get burned down through somebody to carry us on. <laughs> and I know this isn't in the book, and I know you've heard me say it before, but I'm pretty sure that's why we've introduced the word we into the Nicene Creed. Because, you know, <laughs> there's Sundays I don't believe all that stuff. I'm just going to tell you. There's Sundays I have doubts about it. But somebody in the room does, and so we do. And hopefully on the Sunday in their doubt and their need, I'm able to carry them because I've come back. I've come back to a place of faith and belief and strength. Well, thanks for reading this book. Again, if you didn't like it, I hope you at least like where it took you thinking. And, and I hope it makes a difference, not just for your Holy Week experience, but, but for, your, for your life of faith. Next week, we'll have breakfast, and won't that be nice? And the week after that, it'll be Easter, and won't that be nice? And the week after that, we'll talk a little bit about Israel and lessons from, from pilgrimage about decoding biblical passages maybe you've always wondered about. So those, those are the next three weeks. Um, hope to see you then.